You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Cut Podcast. I have Dr. Sabrina Sani here today. I'm your host, nurse practitioner Claire O'Brien, but I have Dr. Sabrina Sani today, who is a family medicine physician, but y'all, she has dual fellowship, or basically she did two different fellowships after she completed residency in specialized women's health and then medical breast. She did both of those at Cleveland Clinic. Um, so needless to say, she is overqualified to talk about what we're going to talk about today. I'm so pumped. <laughs> I know people are going to love this subject. So thank you so much for coming. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy we finally got this scheduled and we're doing it. I know. Life, life happens. It's been a while, yeah, but here we are. And I'm, yeah. I'm excited. You just got back from like a huge conference. So you've got yes. all this fresh hot tips on your brain. Yep. Yep. It was awesome. It was uh, the big menopause society conference in Philly and it was wonderful. So I'm excited. Amazing. Well, yeah. I do. I mean, I will say like just my age demographic is kind of who mostly listens, but I do have a decent amount of women and, and not, I mean, I'm getting older, so I'm getting creeping up on perimenopause, <laughs> I feel like, but um, I do have so many women that are like, can you talk about what to, what to expect, what's happening, what's going on just with hormones kind of later in life. And so yeah. I'm, I'm just so excited that you're here. But okay. T- just kind of tell everybody like, what is your bread and butter? Like what's your main thing that you do and talk about and love to do? Yeah. So gosh, it's sort of like changed a lot over the last couple of years. So right now I actually work in a breast center. And so my role is to sort of do kind of more breast medicine and women's health within that specific population. But I love all things menopause and all women. And the reality is, is like you mentioned before, is menopause is not talked about in the way that it should be, right? So every woman that lives long enough is going to experience this, right? And we just don't talk about it. And whether you're 25 or 30 or 55 to 60, like you should sort of know what you should be expecting. And I think anticipating that is really important. So right now I do a lot of new breast cancer diagnosis. I work with a lot of high-risk patients, survivorship care. And there's obviously a lot that we can sort of talk about with hormone therapy and breast cancer risk in general. Um, which oh, and it's October. Oh my and gosh, it's October. We, okay, yes. All right, well, we need to do, okay, we'll do We've a second a lot. episode. Yes. We will, we'll do a whole second episode on that and I'll make sure it comes out in October so that everybody yes. can hear it. and every, Because it's fresh on everybody's mind in October, yep. which is like... Yep. Should yeah. be all the time, but anyway, I digress. Okay, we'll do a second episode sure. on specifically breast cancer. Amazing. Yeah. And then I work a lot with um, general women in midlife women's care talking about perimenopause, menopause. I prescribe hormone therapy. We prescribe non-hormonal options if you're not a candidate for hormone therapy. So that's sort of mm-hmm. like my bread and butter. So lots of stuff, but I love it all. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start with like a really, I feel like hot question that okay. is, the bane of a lot of people's existence right now, probably yours as well. Can you balance your hormones? No, it's I, even I, a thing. No. I mean, it's rhetorical for me, but I'm just <laughs> thinking you. No, this whole kind of concept of like 
estrogen dominance and balancing your hormones through diet or exercise or whatever. I mean, I think the reality is, is perimenopause or that transition into menopause can last seven to 10 years. So I tell women generally anytime after 40, it's fair game. Things can start happening. Things can start changing before that last menstrual period. So I do see a lot of patients that come to me in their 40s that are like, yeah, you know, I just feel like my hormones are off. And one of the biggest telltale signs is that your periods start to change, whether it's heavier, lighter, more frequently, less frequently, but they just sort of have like these vague symptoms and and they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't really know what to to attribute it to. The reality is, is you can't, you can't take something, you can't like see it's like, I mean, I've heard like everything. Social media is just like, it's a blessing and a curse because you can see yeah, all this like about seed cycling. I mean, I don't even know what seed cycling is. And it's just crazy because everybody talks about eating certain seeds during your time of the month. And I'm like, I don't think this side of it's based. It's an unpopular yeah. opinion. So whoever is listening that wants to talk about it more and message me about it, give me some re- good quality, high yield research. I'm happy to read it, but I personally have not found any that supports things like seed cycling or things you can do to like sort of balance your hormones. Truly. Okay, let me ask you this. It, here's one thing, though, I do think, and I admittedly, like, I really don't know anything about seed cycling. I just see it and I'm like, la, la, la. But okay, I wonder if something like seed cycling is taking a symptom of our hormone fluctuations. Like, let's say, I'm just going to pick one, like constipation. Okay. Or whatever, bloating, cramping, what have you. And perhaps you have this symptom coming out more at a particular time in your cycle or in your life. And the seed portion of it helps one of your symptoms. But we're saying like, oh, it's balancing your hormones. We really know it's not balancing your hormones at all. Maybe it's helping one of your symptoms. So I feel like if we could get an accurate portrayal of what's actually happening, then maybe someone like you would be like, sure, this this particular thing might help you at this particular time Point, of yes. month, year of life, whenever, whenever it is. I don't know. And I'm just completely speculating because again, like I literally not, I don't really know anything about seed cycling, but I mean, I think I, that's I totally true. I mean, it, it's true. Think about all the things that can contribute to bloating and constipation anyway. Right. So yeah, I'm sure it definitely helps. And I'm a huge proponent of people like, living as healthy as they possibly can, right? Like I think food is a hundred percent medicine. I think what we put in our body, we can mm-hmm. feel. I totally believe that. I mean, just from personal experience, I, I I totally want patients to know that they should be doing that, but it's not balancing your hormones, right? It's not like what we're labeling right. it, it as doing, right? If you, if I have a patient that tells me that I, you know, have I cycle whatever seeds, I don't know, pumpkin seeds. I I think I read that on an article once, (laughs) but like by all means, like eat it. If that makes you feel good during their time period, by all means do it. But I don't want you to go around telling women or telling other people that this is like how to balance hormones because that's just not true. And that's how a lot of misinformation happens, unfortunately, on social media and other platforms. So no, it's it's frustrating. And I, I think that's kind of part of the problem right now is that women are potentially getting symptom relief from these other remedies because most, I mean, the reality is most physicians, particularly if you're just seeing like your primary care or even your GYN, you don't have 45 minutes to an hour to talk about diet and symptom relief, which, which I hate that like the medical community gets this terrible rap, right? Of like, we don't talk about this and we don't, 
And we don't because we we don't have time, which we don't sucks. Have time. Unless yeah. you're a cash-based practice. And this is like such a bigger conversation, but it's, you would turn into a cash-based practice and charge cash for your time because you don't have to worry about insurance reimbursement. So it really goes back to big insurance, which is so much worse than big pharma. But yeah, anyway, totally. I don't want to digress, but it, it, we just, we don't have time. So we're not really talking about it. And so, and women are miserable, especially when you get to perimenopause and menopause and they just want some kind of relief. And maybe this is helping, but not through balancing your hormones. So, correct. okay. What are the things that you do actually check and look at for mm. like levels and fluctuations and that it is there is anything you're she's smiling like, like, oh, <laughs> this no. is such a good question so menopause in and of itself is a clinical diagnosis you do not need blood work to diagnose menopause menopause okay. is basically when you go 12 consecutive months without a period the only times i have checked hormone levels is if I'm, my patient has had a hysterectomy and i'm not able to tell you know if they had a hysterectomy when they're 35 for some other reason i can't really tell you kind of what where you're at in the menopausal pro in the menopausal process um and there's really two hormones that you need to check. You need to check an estradiol level or an estrogen level. What are the balloons happening on the side? Y'all, balloons? We're on this recording platform and literally a bouquet of balloons just came across the stream. I have no clue what just happened. Like, okay, but you know what? They just wanted to celebrate this conversation. They wanted to Thank celebrate you. the conversation. So estradiol Thank you, <laughs> and, so um, and FSH or a follicle stimulating hormone. So in the setting okay. of menopause, your FSH will be high and your estradiol will be low. That would okay. be indicative of menopause. Now we can go into this whole direct-to-consumer hormone testing, which in the fertility space, Hormone testing is needed. It's done on a particular day. It's evidence-based and you do it. In the menopausal space, there's really no need to check hormone levels. And a lot of those testings, those you know, direct-to-consumer tests are saliva-based, which are not an accurate portrayal of what your hormone levels are in, a, in your body. Oh, yeah. And they do a lot of precursor hormones, which truthfully really don't have a ton of significant clinical significance. So when they come to me with that stack of papers of hormones, I'm really looking at two and even then, if they haven't had a period in 16 months, I sort of already know the answer. Like, yes, I know your estrogen is going to be matter. Well. Yeah. Doesn't it matter doesn't where matter. Your, the hormones are. If you haven't had your period in a year, yeah. then you're in menopause regardless. regardless. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, what is it just then based on symptoms to help mm-hmm. kind of help women in the transition? Like, what what are you looking for? How are you managing yeah. that? Let's, yeah. What are you looking for? So about 80% of women will present with hot flashes and night sweats. That's by far the most common. Um, mm-hmm. But what women don't understand is that there are estrogen receptors from your head all the way down to your toes. So a lot of those vague symptoms that sort of get overlooked, the brain fog, the poor sleep, the dry eyes, mm-hmm. the dry skin, which you probably know tons about just with your practice, right? Weight changes, joint pain, sexual dysfunction, vaginal dryness, recurrent UTIs. I mean, everything. Fatigue, everything. I mean, just everything hair thinning, hair loss. I mean, it's, it's all over. Palpitations is actually another big one too, that people don't realize palpitations can happen more frequently during the perimenopausal transition. So are you testing? Okay. So we, we have estrogen receptors from head to toe, but you're looking at these other two hormones. Okay. So do you ever test estrogen to determine like, how, how do you decide who to treat and what to treat them with? 
So estradiol is basically the the serum, what we would check check for in the blood. So there's estriol, estrone, estradiol. Estradiol is the one that we use to basically guide clinical decision-making a lot of times. How do we determine what to treat? It's really based off your symptoms and what you're feeling. I mean, for in general, hormone replacement therapy for women with a uterus is a combination of estrogen plus a progesterone. For women that don't have a uterus, they can take estrogen by itself. So they don't need that progesterone with it. Then there's also different routes of administration. There's orals, there's gels, there's patches, there's vaginal preparation. So we sort of individualize it based off what you're coming in with. Yeah, I was going to say, what how, what does that look like? Is it a cream? Is it a pellet? Like a- so, okay. So pellets, we could do a whole other episode on because that's not evidence-based. And quite frankly, in my practice, I've seen a lot of pellet disasters of people, you know, Getting a bunch of pellets in every three to six months, again, you know, as a cash-based business, they feel great, obviously, because it's super high levels of hormones, and it's generally a combination of estrogen and testosterone, um, and they're not really getting the balanced progesterone if they have a uterus. So I've seen endometrial cancer, I've seen higher rates of breast cancer, because things are just not done properly, to be honest with you. Okay, is that bioidentical like what is the bioidentical world this is again like i should understand more of this as a woman myself and just simply don't i feel like i kind of just la 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 like a yeah. lot of it and i'm like i'll burn that bridge when i get there cross it burn it wouldn't either one <laughs> so bioidentical is, it's a it's a really good marketing term all it's basically saying and we can thank Suzanne Summers and her book for this one because that sort oh of put like what sparked this whole concept of bioidenticals but it's essentially creating a hormone that's chemically and structurally similar to what your own body would produce right so okay. people like it because it comes across as the more sort of sort of natural approach but to say, like, say, safer right safer but it, there's actually no evidence to say that it's safer or more effective than synthetics and if you think about it all of these hormones are made in the lab. So to some degree, they're all synthetic, right? This is but, what I don't understand. Like why, yeah. why right? Like it's not yeah. synthetic, but I'm like, well, you didn't harvest it out of someone's body. Correct. So it's 100% is synthetic. I don't really understand where, why we're even saying this. So there's, well, there's two, like, so the estradiol is considered your bioidentical hormone, estradiol, okay? Okay. Um, which there are FDA-approved forms of that are considered bioidentical that we prescribe every single day, but everyone sort of thinks that physicians kind of in Western medicine don't prescribe bioidenticals. Half of hormone therapy is considered a bioidentical based off the current marketing societal definition of it. The one that people are nervous about is conjugated equine estrogen or premarin, which is derived from horse urine, which was kind of used many, many years ago, which was studied in the big WHI sort of scared like the OG. women. It's the OG. It is sometimes still used, and I honestly, I think there's patients that are ideal candidates for primarine, to be honest with you. So I, mm. I still prescribe it. I prescribe estradiol. It's really like, it's a discussion of, you know, what is what route of administration works best for the patient, talking about risks and benefits, talking about, honestly, like you said, insurance coverage half the time is like somewhat of a realistic discussion and barrier that we sometimes have to have with certain medications. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, so everybody is a little bit different. You know, some people like the patches. I, I work in Florida. Sometimes, you know, the patches like people say, oh, I, I'm going to the pool. I'm going to the beach. The patches don't stick or I'm sweating. I'm running all the time. They kind of like peel up. So you sort of have to think of like lifestyle and the person as a whole when you think about route of administration. 
So do you think that that the reason the bioidentical space has kind of taken off so much is really just, it, it sounds like an access issue because if most, like we were kind of talking about in the beginning, like most physicians don't have like the time and, and expertise of, of this particular issue to, to really troubleshoot it with women, which is not, certainly not a not towards yeah. any physician. It's just rea- the unfortunate reality. And if an insurance isn't going to cover it a lot of the time, probably. So do you think that it's just kind of an opportunity for this space to exist? Potentially. I think that's in part true. I also think that, you know, there was a, there's a really fantastic book called Estrogen Matters by Avram Blooming. And within mm-hmm. the first couple of chapters, this like little blurb has always stuck out to me that women ultimately seek out these alternative providers because they want to be heard, right? They want it. They don't feel like they have time to actually express all that they want to express. And as a physician that works in a hospital setting, I've really had to advocate time to like say, yeah, if I have a menopause consult, I need 60 minutes. Like you can't do this in a 30 minute, 20 minute, 45 minute space. Like there's a lot to cover, right? Because there's all this other stuff about chronic disease risk. And so I think that has sort of been capitalized on, like, you know, this concept of like, I'm feeling dismissed by my doctor, I only have 20 minutes, I've got to get my pap, I've like, we're in and out. And I think the whole wellness space is sort of like booming and they've really just done a, a great job marketing this bioidentical natural. It's probably the same with like the clean beauty movement. It doesn't necessarily mean it's For better sure. or more effective, but it yeah. gets a lot of publicity and a lot of people use right. it, even though it doesn't necessarily mean it's better than what we could get elsewhere. No. And it, and it, that's such a good point. It, it really is. And then let's talk about skin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's such a hard conversation because there are very specific things. Um, for example, like fertility, we talked about earlier, there are very specific things that can and have been shown to make a difference during fertility. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, is there a place for this? Yes. And is that, is that, skincare as effective? No, it's typically not. And so it's just a bigger conversation of, okay, if you have somebody with acne and they're having trouble getting pregnant, but then you don't want to put them on antibiotics. It just, it's, yeah. So it's not that clean. And and also again, like what the hell does clean even mean? No one knows. Right. But it's not that it shouldn't exist. It's just, it's gotta be a better conversation of why are we even talking about this? And what does it even really mean? But anyway, that's a whole episode itself too. But it's just so complicated. And I think, like you said, women really don't feel hurt. I have a friend who had all the symptoms of being in perimenopause and was completely, 100% dismissed by her doctor. Yeah. And lo and behold, within six, eight months, it was like she hasn't had, never had another period. She wasn't full blunt. You know, she was like 39, I think. Just want to feel, just, it want to feel... Her. Of course. I, I completely Tough. get it. You know, we've all been on the other side as patients and we want to feel validated. And like, certainly during this time, I mean, it's significant. C- could you imagine if a man dealt with hot flashes or decreased work productivity because of what they say, a natural aging process, there'd be a hundred medications for men that like don't oh scare gosh. them away. You know, like look at, look so, at Viagra. I mean, for heaven's uh, sake, I know we have two women, we have two medications only for women's sexual dysfunction and low libido, but men have multiple options. Right. And the two Everything. that women have aren't even that effective. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So Just like kind of mediocre. Yeah. Ugh. Um, okay. Skin before I forget. 
Let's talk about aging with the skin and what, what happens. Cause that is such a tough one. And it's so frustrating and hard. And the main thing I feel like I see is kind of dryness and then obviously just like sagging, but, but what, what is, why, what is that? What's happening? There's estrogen receptors in our skin. So biggest things are decreased laxity, decreased uh, moisture. So dryness, those are the Mm -hmm. two big, the two biggest, just like you said. You're going to love this, but last week at the Menopause Society meeting, we had a dermatologist talk to us about, you know, what happens to the skin as we age and like recommendations for products. And there is this sort of like um, new element of research about topical estrogen. I was going to say, why are we putting estrogen all over our faces? Can we do well, that? We can't put it all over. Is this our a faces. thing? Okay. Well, well, so there was actually. Um, a really interesting study that she talked about where women were using what what is normally like a vaginal tube, so a vaginal preparation, and they were applying a little bit under their eyes and on their hands, on the backs of their hands, and it increased firmness, decreased dark circles, and had a significant improvement. And you can only use like a pea-sized amount. There is one attention one study that's getting a ton of attention though of a 93 year old woman that basically got breast cancer and uterine cancer from applying estrogen to her face and body and when we went back and sort of calculated it she had to have been using a tube and a half all over her face and body for 75 years that's how much she was using so i don't think you can really generalize that right I personally think, so the dermatologists, and there's actually quite a bit of people there that said that they've been talking to their patients about it. If you only apply a small amount under the eyes on localized areas and behind the hands, there's no evidence to date of systemic absorption. So, but I don't know if we can trust people because here's the thing. If you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to put it all over. Totally. (laughs) I completely agree. And the caveat to this is anybody that's listening, if you have a tube of Prembrin, do not go and put it all over your body and your face. Don't Girl, say that no. you heard me. Don't do that. No, Talk this to is your not doctor what we're doing. About it. We need randomized control trial data to basically tell us if this is effective or not. But I think the preliminary stuff we're seeing is actually pretty promising. That would be so great if we could get like... I would sacrifice my body for that. Did, did the 93-year-old woman, did she look amazing? I'm sure she looked fantastic. I mean, I'm sure she looked <laughs> like she was 50, right? I've had a couple of patients that are on systemic hormones. So like a pill of Premarin that are 93 yeah. that I'm like, who am I to take you off of this? You've been doing yeah. well. Your cardiovascular risk is low. Like, you're you know, you three, you're 93 and you look amazing and you feel amazing. You feel ama- more amazing than half of my 60 year old patients. Right. So there are benefits for hormone therapy. I just think, unfortunately, with the Women's Health Initiative in the early 2000s, people have just been so scared from it. So, and I, okay, truly, we will do a second episode on yeah. like, the cancer risk and all that. Can you just like briefly tell people what that is that you're referring to so that they yes. understand kind of the context of like what, honestly, the decades that that essentially set us back? Yeah, totally. So let me take it back a little bit. Um, so the Women's Health Initiative was like the biggest trial we had that looked at the use of hormone therapy actually in primary prevention. So it looked at it in terms of preventing things like cardiovascular risk. It looked at mortality. It looked at bone health. It looked at breast cancer risk. In the early, the started started like in the mid nineties, but by 2002, it was abruptly ended. There was a huge press conference. And they said, we have to stop this immediately because there's a 26% chance of an increased risk for breast cancer, 41% increased risk in cardiovascular disease. 
And everybody basically stopped using their hormones and stopped being prescribed. People stopped talking about menopause. And again, that's really when I think the conversation shifted away from talking about this. Now, mm-hmm. is there a risk of, horm- of breast cancer with hormone therapy use? There is. It is very small. It is average. So we have to think of things in terms of relative risk and absolute risk, right? I'm not going to get into the whole statistics of it all. But the reality is, is if a woman's risk between the age of 50 to 60 of developing breast cancer is 2.3%, that 26% increase puts her at 2.94%. So it's not that your risk goes from zero oh, to 26%. Good it means that it goes from 2.3 to 2.9. So it doesn't necessarily mean that like it's, it does increase. I'm not saying that it doesn't, but that's a risk benefit conversation you have to have oh, with your patient, right? right? right. And if we look at it in terms of absolute risk, it is an extra one case per 1,000 annually, which is actually pretty similar to if you drink a lot of alcohol, if you have an elevated BMI, if you're sedentary, you right. know, all the lifestyle stuff too. So it just, it does, it gets a, a really bad rep. And I think it shouldn't because it can actually help a lot of women during a very kind of vulnerable, critical period of time. So you bring up such a good point about alcohol, which and mm. we can loop that back into the clean beauty discussion. We yeah. are, I feel like, spending all of this time on, and money on products and it, literally everything we can do to what we think, you know, minimize our risk. And yet here are, I'm going to generalize, all of us having a glass or two of wine every night with a known class one carcinogen. Like yeah. there is nary a cancer besides maybe like cutaneous skin cancer, like basal cell sure. carcinoma. But like yeah. everything else, your your risk increases with alcohol. Every, I mean, everything. Like I can't yeah. think of another one that doesn't increase with with consumption of alcohol. So it just, I don't know. It's not, it, it just makes me so frustrated that we're, I feel like we're spinning our wheels in all these other areas, but because it's so culturally accepted and normal to yeah. drink and, and delightful that we all just kind of are like, like, la la la, like head in the sand yeah. because we want to be. So, and we'll talk a lot know. about this during that breast cancer episode because, and I'll just say the statistic about a one third or 33% of all breast cancers can be prevented with lifestyle alone, which is huge. So when I went back and said earlier, like, especially if you think that one in eight women, think about how one in eight women get breast cancer during their lifetime, right? That's a lot. That's a lot of women that can potentially prevent it just by virtue. And again, that doesn't mean to say that patients who are super, super healthy don't go on to get breast cancer. I mean, it happens. It's unfortunate, but like, there's so much that we can do. And I mean, the magic number is less than seven glasses per week. And I really start to see that increase with three glasses of alcohol per week in terms of cancer risk. So I, I, it's just not that much. I mean, for people who have a a drink a day and and also I think it's servings too. Like we think we're having a, a, so a glass might be two servings or a serving and a half. So you do that a few times a week, which is, I mean, super, I feel like normal in our our culture. It's normal Um, in our culture for sure. It's just, it's, it's interesting that we don't, if the risk is similar to that to hormone therapy use, you know, more or less than why does hormone therapy use get such a bad rap, right? Mm, the I've other thing on alcohol. No, I will also tell you that in the Women's Health Initiative, that risk was increased only with women on, on the combined estrogen progesterone group. So the women that had a hysterectomy that took estrogen by itself 
actually had lower risks for breast cancer. So this whole concept that estrogen causes breast cancer is probably not 100% true. It was probably the synthetic progesterone that was used in the WHI trials that probably was more stimulatory to the breast. So, I mean, we've learned so much in the last 20 plus years since that trial about long-term use and mortality and breast cancer risk and cardiovascular risk. I mean, it can using hormone therapy early, like during perimenopause, actually may be cardioprotective. So actually may help against cardiovascular disease. I mean, there's... Just so much. Which statistically so much. is it's significantly more likely to kill a woman than a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. So gosh, it's so interesting. Okay, what about testosterone? Do you use my I feel like I'm seeing more and more women on like a topical testosterone cream. Um yeah. do you use a lot of testosterone? Are you testing for that? How does that work? So sometimes um testosterone is used and FDA approved for what we call hypoactive sexual desire disorder in women or low libido. So I have definitely uh-huh. used topical testosterone. I don't always use it as a combination with like general hormone therapy, but if you come to me with low libido, it can be really, really helpful. So I do check testosterone levels in, in that regard too. And that might be something you want to frequently monitor as well, just because topical preparations can be a little dicey because like how much are you absorbing? How much is the patient actually applying? Um, yeah. You know, you got to check with, compliance a little bit, right? Same thing like we talked about the primary tube. Some woman's probably going to go home and put it all over her face. So you got to be a little bit mindful of that. There also are vaginal preparations. So there's something called vaginal DHEA and DHEA is a precursor hormone to both estrogen and testosterone. So when you apply Mm -hmm. it to the vaginal tissue, it actually helps with sexual function, desire, and helps with any kind of vaginal dryness as well. So that's actually a really good option for women because there's very minimal systemic absorption of those hormones. Do you see much of that testosterone type issue before menopause? I feel like I'm, and I'm saying, I feel like I'm hearing that a lot with people my age, like late 30s, kind of earlier 40s, where you're maybe not even in perimenopause yet. Or maybe, I guess maybe you are. I you could know. be, again, like 10 are years. We? And who knows? Natural age of menopause is like 51, but that means that a good amount of women still go maybe. into you know late 40s, which means sort of late 30s could be fair game. Yeah, I mean, I certainly see, I think this concept of like low libido, there's definitely a true hormonal deficiency once you get to perimenopause and menopause, but there's also a lot of like psychosocial stressors. I mean, this has been studied you know, a lot in terms of it's, it's sort of a multifactorial approach to treatment, to be it's honest. It's so complicated for women. It's complicated. It is. It is. Okay. What is your take her message? And then everyone will have to tune in for episode two for more breast cancer info. Cause that yes. is what we're going to talk about for sure. But what's, what's your take her message? Like if you're like, I have, here's one thing I would like for all women to know and they don't know <laughs> So I guess I would say my take-home message is regardless of how old you are, we need to start having the conversation about menopause, right? We need to normalize it the same way we normalize a a variety of other things. Um, If you feel like you're being dismissed by your doctor, go find somebody else that will listen to you. I'll tell you the Menopause Society has a website with a list of certified practitioners. All of us have sat for a certified exam to properly and appropriately prescribe hormone therapy. There are tons of us. I mean, there's thousands of us across the country. Um, we want to help. We know we know what we're doing. We're practicing the evidence. And honestly, don't be afraid of hormone therapy. It could be a really great option. It could be used long-term, short-term. And 
don't always believe what you hear on social media. I don't know. <laughs> that and is speaking like, of social media, <laughs> where, so where can they find, where can people find you? I am on Instagram at SKS underscore ND. I'm not really on Twitter or X. Is that like the news? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't, you I don't, don't need know. to follow me on that. Honestly, I don't even know my login. Um, but Instagram is probably the best place to follow me for now, but hopefully more avenues are coming. So stay tuned. Amazing. All right. Um, everybody, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you liked this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Tune in for episode two with Dr. Sarni, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>